Hi, and welcome to another interview for the Zero to Asic Course YouTube channel. And I'm very, very happy to be joined by Eric Schlepfer. Uh, you probably know Eric from his recent great book called Open Circuits, where he sliced up lots of circuits into photos. That was a collaboration with Evil Mad Scientist. And another really great project that he did with Evil Mad Scientist is the Monster 6502. So welcome, Eric. Thanks, Matt. How are you doing? I'm doing great. Um, yeah. So I've uh, I've heard a few interviews that you've done before, like um, with uh, the Ampower, that was mm -hmm. number 609, unnamed reverse engineering podcast, 85, and a recent YouTube uh, chat that you had with Bill Hurd on his channel. Um, and uh, so I would say to anyone that wants to find out more about you, and also, of, co of course, your uh, Tube Time US on Twitter, right. which is, mm -hmm. I think, how I first uh, bumped into you. Uh, if you want to find out more about Eric or his other projects, then uh, check out some of those interviews. They're really good, recommended. Um, and on this latest one that you did, uh, I just heard you say some things about the design of the Monster 6502. Right. Um, that made me think there's quite there's kind of a, an, an intersection between ASIC design and what you had to do to make that disintegrated processor work. So I was hoping we could like get into the technical details. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I think I think there's uh, some really interesting uh, things that we can look at as far as the uh, design process is concerned. Uh, I guess we yeah. might as well dig in. Um, I think a great part to uh, begin with, uh, with the design of the Monster 6502, is kind of where it all started, which was me looking at the Visual 6502 project and realizing that they had already done half the work. So in other words, they had already gotten an image of the 6502 chip, which is, of course, closed source. So it's not like you can just go out there and download some open source schematic. Uh, but they, mm -hmm. they took those images. And from that, they were able to reverse engineer all of the transistors and how they were connected together. But they did so in the form of a netlist. And so this is what I have up on the screen here. It's just some JavaScript. And it literally has a list of transistors along with the nodes that they're connected to. So it's not a schematic, it's kind of this intermediate file here. Mm -hmm. So you can see that there's this list of transistors. And then uh, most of these numbers here, uh, the first three are the net connections for the gate and the source and the drain. Actually, technically, they're both channel connections because they have all common substrate. Okay. So this is a list of all the transistors. Then. Yes. And then the next couple of parameters are just geometry and, and things like that. So it displays nicely on the uh, Visual 6502 uh, website. And so I kind of mm. started with this and I began writing a program to take that and then turn that into a CSV file that I could then import into a spreadsheet. And so for me, it was just a right. more natural way to uh, kind of work from things. And the spreadsheet looks like this. And so there's a whole bunch of rows here. There's actually one row for every uh, transistor in the design. And you might notice that these are all highlighted in yellow. And the reason they're highlighted is that as I went through and translated this into the Altium schematic, I would highlight each transistor as I completed it. So I went through okay. this completely manually, converting it into a schematic. So 3,510 rows, not including the uh, header row. How long did it take you? This took about six months. So it was roughly okay. six months to work my way through this list, one transistor at a time, and translate yeah. that manually like to the schematic. a day or something. 
Yeah, yeah, no, there it was. It was a lot of work, and I tried to spread it out. So it's, you know, every mm-hmm. evening or whatever, I would come home and uh, spend a couple of hours uh, adding a few transistors. And yeah. along the way, I learned uh, some interesting things about how the uh, net naming works. So you can see that some of these names are English, others are just numeric. And as mm-hmm. I figured them out, I actually added some names to some of those nets that weren't understood by the Visual 6502 team. Uh, there's a couple of interesting notes in here as well. There's some transistors that are duplicate. And this has to do with the way that they turned the uh, mask images into uh, a transistor list. And they did that kind of with a software approach. It was semi-automated. They had some humans in the loop as well. But there's mistakes in here. They don't affect the simulation because if you have two transistors connected in parallel, the simulation works identically. There's there's no change there. Mm-hmm. And so these were all duplicates that I was able to get rid of. Uh, there's also a couple of rows in here. Uh, I think these are highlighted in green. I found some earlier. There we go. Uh, these are actually just ESD structures. And so they're connected as ESD clamps on the uh, pads. And so in that sense, they're not really useful for the Monster 6502. And so I just left those out. And so that's kind of the whole I list. guess that's, that uh, all the point. transistors you were using uh, already were ESD protected then? Well, they either had built-in ESD protection or I uh, I also added some diodes, some actual discrete diodes to clamp the voltages on the pins to either uh, VCC or ground as uh, mm. kind of the typical uh, approach that you would see on a discrete circuit board. Yeah. Yeah. So when you showed me the net list, I was thinking, because I'm used to like writing a bit of Verilog to describe a design, mm-hmm. then throwing it into the ASIC tools. And then I, at the end, when it does a, a step called layout versus schematic, mm-hmm. it's extracting the circuit from the GDS file, mm-hmm. which is a bit like the Gerber file, right. and then comparing that against the design that went in. Mm-hmm. And when you, when you look at a gate level net list, it's just this, it's like a big list of not just transistors because it's with standard cells. So it's like flip-flops and AND gates and OR gates, but then just wire names. So it's really, really impossible to read or take. I can't imagine being faced with that and then someone saying, now, can you <laughs> make a PCB out of it? <laughs> right, right, right. I mean, technically I could have done something like this. So I could have written a program to take this JavaScript file and then turn it into a net list that I could have imported into Altium layout. And mm. I think it would have worked and it would have saved me maybe six months, but it would have cost me a lot later on. Uh, it's much easier to troubleshoot a design when you have an actual human readable schematic rather than just something like this. Yes. Mm. And, and um, I've seen the schematics on another, um, on another interview that you did. Uh-huh. And they're, you know, they're very nice just on their own as a, as a way of making it much more understandable. Yeah. So this, this is an example right here. So. This is a section of the ALU. I think I reviewed this a little bit with uh, Bill. But the idea was to lay this out in a way that is conducive to conceptual understanding. Hmm. Uh, I've actually seen the original schematics. Uh, somebody showed me the original blueprints. And nice. the original blueprints were drawn as a way to match the layout. And and that's kind of things how things were done in the 70s. Like you would you're designing your chip, you're working with a layout person, and you would draw the transistors and the logic in the order that they would go in on the die to assist with that place yeah. and route process. Yeah. It's one of the big differences you see when oh, the automation came much more in as you get like these just 
giant blobs of standard cells right. compared to an older processor like this where you can see the structures of the chip really clearly differentiated. Yeah, it's it's a very different strategy. And, and you can kind of tell by looking at the die photo how the transistors mm. are placed where it's it is not anywhere near as uh, systematic as a modern logic design is, right? So you would expect mm. to see your VCC, alternating VCC and ground rails and all of that with the logic in between. And that's not the way that things are done on uh, chips of this era. Everything mm. was hand optimized yeah. and crammed in as tightly as possible because if you could fit more logic on a chip, then uh, you could potentially make more money from it, right? The more complex the, that you could fit in into a single device, then the more efficient it was. And so that was, yeah. that was kind of the idea there. But the result was is that you can't really use that original blueprint as a useful schematic. I mean, you can, it just takes extra cognitive load to look at it and understand what's going on. Uh, whereas mm. here, with every transistor drawn out, even though it's transistor level, not gate level, you can kind of look at it and realize that, oh, we've just got some NAND gates here and some NOR gates and a couple of three input gates and so on and so forth. Like it's not terribly difficult to understand what's going on. After you stare at it enough, you kind mm -hmm. of pull out what the what the cell is being created. Because I'm used to more working at the standard cell level, so I kind of recognize a little bit of the, the different standard cells. But I'm not really, and I can tell you where the transistors are in a standard mm -hmm. cell, but I'm not used to seeing the schematic like this. Yeah. And even in the 70s, this would not have been typical. If you look at the mm. uh, original 6502 schematic, which I've, which I've seen, and you can find similar ones out there. It's, it's not like it's that hard to find. Uh, people have digitized some of the uh, mask licensees uh, schematics, which are similar what they'll do is they'll draw individual gates, they'll draw inverters using the standard logic symbols as you're kind of accustomed mm -hmm. to seeing. Few devices are drawn differently. So for example, you might see uh, an AND OR gate. So it could be like two AND gates stuck together with, a, with an OR gate, and they're all drawn as sort of a single symbol all stuck together with no wires in between. And that would represent a structure like this right here, which is just made up of three transistors. And so there's some interesting sort of composite logic gates that you can make. Occasionally, they'll draw a yeah. single transistor if it's uh, like an open collector uh, type of, I should say, open drain type of a circuit, or if it's a uh, transmission gate. But typically, they would draw that as yeah. a gate. Yeah. So just looking at this now, all the transistors are N-type. Mm -hmm. So uh, was this all done with NMOS logic? Yes. Logic? Yes, this is entirely okay. NMOS. So all those uh, pull-up resistors, that's where you're burning a lot of the power then? That's why I'm burning more power. So there's there's a couple of interesting reasons for that. Uh, of course, the original design is all uh, depletion mode load because uh, for the simple reason that they just take up a lot less space than a resistor. Hmm. And the saturation current of a active load like that, they set it to be something fairly low. I forget what the exact number is, but it's not very large. There's a bit more current going into these devices for the simple reason that in the fan out, I have to drive all this input capacitance of all these power fets. Yeah. And th these literally <laughs> are power fets. These are meant to be used in uh, very small power supplies. And so mm -hmm. the gate capacitance is fairly high. I did a lot of work in part selection to try and find the lowest gate capacitance I, prob I possibly could. And it's low for a power fet, but it's still much higher than a typical transistor that you would find on uh, on an NMOS device like this. Yeah. Why did you go for power fets rather than something smaller? 
I mean, it really was just the DigiKey selection. So I just pull up DigiKey, okay. look through the selection chart, and then I optimized it for the lowest threshold voltage I could find along with the lowest capacitance. Uh, mm -hmm. So I was concerned because there are a number of super buffers in here, and there's a VTH drop across that. And so that means that after a few stages of buffers uh, without an inverter, then you'll actually get maybe uh, three, three and a half volts uh, VOH instead of uh, something closer to the five volt rail. Okay, yeah, I actually, I think you probably mentioned it, but I'd forgotten this is all running on five volts. Right, it's a single voltage yeah. uh, five volt design. Yeah, okay. So uh, you mentioned something interesting there about fan mm -hmm. out. Um, so with the ASIC tools that I'm used to using, that's all taken care of automatically for me. So you get like this, a resizer that will go through and like change a one drive strength inverter to a four drive strength inverter mm -hmm. or whatever, or for clock trees, you have special buffers that can drive things extra hard. Um, so how did you work out where you needed to add more transistors to gang up the extra drive strength? Yeah. So you kind of hinted at the tools thing. Uh, mm. I basically wrote my own tool because I yeah. was thinking about it and I, I kind of grew concerned about it too, because, you know, again, there's all this downstream capacitance. And I don't mm. have an active pull-up here. I don't have any depletion mode MOSFETs in here, uh, which meant that I basically needed to individually calculate how many gates each of those pull-up resistors is connected to, and then calculate mm. the resistor value specifically for that. And so I wrote a little Python program that would basically go through and take uh, the netlist, uh, traverse it, and then for every resistor, which implies that it's an output, it would uh, sort of traverse the uh, connection tree and basically count how many gate pins it was connected to, add that up to produce a total, multiply it by the capacitance per pin, and then it would look at the RC time constant uh, as a result of that. And then I had some kind of a timing figure of merit. It's been a little while since I've done it, so I forget which, which mm -hmm. number I used. Yeah. But, uh, maybe it was a microsecond or something like that. So, you know, RC equals one microsecond. And then for the specific capacitance, you can calculate the required resistance to target that particular propagation delay. Amazing. So it's all propagation based. <laughs> yeah. So what? Uh, remind me what speed the, the monster runs at? It runs up to around 50 kilohertz. And okay. surprisingly, the speed limit is not these RC delays, as I kind of expected. Okay, right them to be yeah uh, it has more to do with the uh bus capacitance and the way that buses work in the 6502 uh, because everything is effectively open drain it means that mm -hmm. uh, at least in the 6502 uh, they need bus pull-ups and in order to save power among other reasons uh, those pull-ups are not always turned on and so what they do is uh, they they have a two-phase clock and on mm -hmm. one clock phase, they pre-charge the bus. And so they basically take all of the bus lines and all of the buses and then charge them all the way up. They're not quite five volts because again, all we have are these uh, depletion mode MOSFETs. So because of threshold concerns, you only get up to you know, some certain maximum. I think it's maybe four volts. Or, it's probably less here in the Monster 6502 because the transistors are different. So you pre-charge and then in the next uh, half clock cycle, you selectively ground the bus when you're trying to load zeros onto bus lines. So for example, hmm. if you look at the RTL, let's say you're transferring a register onto the bus because you're trying to transfer it from one register 
into another register. So in the previous cycle, you've already pre-charged all of your bus connections up to a logic one. And then in the next cycle, you selectively pull some of those lines down to zero volts. And the problem is, is that number one, you need enough parasitic capacitance on the bus so that pre-charge will last from one cycle to the next. The one state mm -hmm. ones, yeah. And at the same time, you need to be able to pull them down quickly enough that they can get latched properly into the uh, inputs of those other registers. And mm. that's limited by the characteristics of the transmission gates that are used to gate those onto the bus. Okay. Yeah. And I didn't have any choice there because there's very, very few four terminal MOSFETs that you can buy now. Yeah. Okay. So this is another nice little side avenue to talk about mm -hmm. is the, the transmission gate thing. So, um, maybe you can explain, uh, explain us your version and, and tell us why, uh, it's difficult to make in discrete logic. Uh, sure. Let me see if I can find a schematic sheet to use as a visual aid. Uh, so this right here is one of the bus switches I was talking about. Uh, this actually mm. connects uh, two different internal buses together. Uh, there's a very similar circuit that's used to connect individual registers to a bus. And basically what we have here is an array of transistors that don't really have a source and drain. They have a substrate connection that's not tied to either channel connection. It's simply connected to the substrate. What that means mm. is that they're inherently bidirectional devices, and they also don't have a parasitic diode that affects the channel connections. So there's still parasitic diodes that go from the substrate to each channel connection. But because we haven't tied one of the channels to the substrate, we don't get that traditional diode that you would see in a discrete N-channel MOSFET. And the three-pin package. And the three-pin package, exactly. And so that winds up being quite important. So. This one right here is driven by a control line. All the gates are connected together. And so mm. obviously we need enough voltage that we can get this to turn on. The good news is that the, of course, the threshold voltage is relative to the substrate and that's relatively straightforward to get. There's some other effects like channel length modulation and stuff like that, that you probably remember from semiconductor courses that uh, will have an impact on here. And so these are certainly not perfect transmission gates, mm -hmm. but they work well enough for that uh, purpose where you run into some key differences have to do with the parasitic capacitances as well as the RDS on. And so these particular FETs are fairly small. They're designed to be used for uh, differential pairs in analog amplifiers and stuff like that. And so their RDS mm -hmm. on is fairly high and the saturation current limit is also fairly low. I think these saturate around eight milliamps or so. And so all of that acts as a speed limit because when you're trying to drive the bus, with all the bus capacitance, okay. the, it, you can only do it so quickly. Mm. And your traces are centimeters, not microns. Exactly. So there's a lot more parasitic yeah. capacitance on the traces. This is a four layer mm. board and I have a ground plane. And so, yes, every trace has quite a bit of parasitic capacitance as well. Yeah. Yeah. Were you able to um, calculate that and take it into account? The trace capacitance, I didn't bother calculating because it's swamped by the capacitance of the MOSFETs. So both okay. the uh, uh, drain to substrate and uh, the uh, gate to substrate capacitances. Amazing. <laughs> uh, 
Is there anything else that you think is interesting about um, uh, where we're at at the moment you want to tell us? Yeah, I mean, it's it's a really interesting design in the sense that there's so much done by hand. Um, it's It really gives you a sort of a snapshot of what I see design was like before the existence of EDA tools. Remember, this thing mm -hmm. was designed entirely with pen and paper. So yeah. I've talked to the designers before and they said that uh, they they actually don't remember if they use simulation or not, but if they did, mm -hmm. it would have been a timeshare on the PDP-11 or something like that running Spice. And so there wasn't really a whole lot you could do uh, without spending a ton of money. So most of it was done with pen and paper and uh, possibly a calculator, most likely a slide rule calculations. Yeah. Yeah. Do you think that they uh, built out little uh, bits of the circuit in a discrete fashion like you most did likely. to test it little bits and pieces? Yeah, most likely yeah. they had some form of a wire wrap prototype. And yeah. that feeds into uh, some of the design challenges that they ran into. You know, people like to talk about the uh, rotate right and say, oh, well, it was a bug and it was broken and all of that. And of course, I've, I've already done a video describing yes. why I believe it's not actually a bug. It was just never implemented. But based on I what I've seen today in the when design, I was brushing up on my six five zero two theory, right? Yeah, but based on what I what I saw in the design was that I think I think they were trying to get it to work on their uh, possibly a wire wrapped prototype or something like that. And I think it was taking a really long time because they were running into issues uh, getting that running. And so at some point, Chuck Pedal I think told them, "Look, guys, we got to get this out in the market because the timing is is." perfect. We've got to get it out mm -hmm. now. If we wait too long to try and get this issue resolved, then the market will have moved on. And so you mm -hmm. can kind of see in the design, yeah. there's these sort of little stubs of functionality that were put in, but then disabled before that first yes. silicon. Yeah. I watched a great video um, kind of in preparation for this interview by, um, it was at the 27th Chaos Communications mm -hmm. Camp by Michael Style, reverse engineering the MOS 6502. Mm -hmm. Have you seen it? Yeah, that one's excellent. Really good one. And th uh, there's one bit where he kind of showed this, like from the decode logic, this uh, wire coming down and then just going nowhere. Yeah. Yeah. It just ends. <laughs> and of course, that would never happen in a modern flow because anything not connected is just thrown away at synthesis. Yeah, exactly. Actually, that brings up another interesting subject, too, because uh, remember when you're doing everything by hand, pen and paper, or you're doing your layout using RubyLith, hmm. you have to manually check it against your own schematic. It's not automatic. So they had to go through manually. And in, in fact, from what I understand, everybody in the company in that tiny little company was involved at that point, checking to make sure that each transistor matched up and that everything was wired correctly. Like that's your one shot because once you're done and you've released that RubyLith off to the uh, company that will shrink it down and make the masks, I mean, that's that's kind of it. Yeah, yeah, and we face the same thing mm -hmm. today. Yeah. One of the things that I ran into myself was a version of that problem. In other words, I had this big schematic that I built, you know, mm -hmm. transmission gates or ALU logic, and I didn't know if it matched up exactly with the visual 6502's netlist. Yeah. And so I ended up writing my own verification program to compare the schematic with the existing netlist. I knew you would. <laughs> yeah. I mean, you, you kind of have to, right? I mean, it's, 
Yeah. It's you could try to do it by hand, but it would be tedious and then you wouldn't be able to repeat and it easily. Error prone as well. Yeah. yeah. So you just yeah. have to automate it. And I actually so did you catch uh, VS tool. That's cool. I did catch two or three mistakes that way. So it was a good thing I did that. Yeah. 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 Um yeah, so that was um uh post um Ultium, right? So you'd done your Ultium, but you'd yet to send off the PCB. I hadn't done the layout at that point. Yeah, so I had okay, a schematic. So this is like pre-layout mm -hmm. verification. Cool. Just trying to tie it in with the, the like the ASIC milestones as well. Yeah. So uh, you wrote your own LVS tool, essentially. Was <laughs> that another Python program? Another Python program. Uh, I would share it, but it's it's pretty awful looking. <laughs> really janky. Yeah. Well, if you look at any of the open source ASIC tools, you probably won't be ashamed anymore. <laughs> I did a, a meme on Twitter a while back. Uh, you could probably find it if you uh, look around, but it's uh, a fake O'Reilly book cover about okay. uh, crappy Python. Cool. I'll, I'll put yeah. it up here in the edit. <laughs> Fun to look at. Okay. So you did find a couple of errors. Great. So it's well worth writing the tool. Yeah, then. absolutely. And if you, when, when you do do this again for the Intel 4004, then you, it, you built your own tool library <laughs> so it's funny you mentioned the 4004 but uh that's already been done so someone has out it? there has already done a discrete uh 4004 okay yeah that's pretty cool yeah yeah uh maybe um just while we're on that topic so i did ask for questions um but almost all of the questions have previously been answered in your excellent videos and interviews already so i'm not going to ask them again i just direct people to the things i've already mentioned uh -huh. and put links down in the description Okay, so now you've got your, um, you spent six months and you've got a, um, a layout in Altium, then you've got to actually do the physical layout. Right, right. So six months in, I've got a schematic and it's, it's hierarchical. So it's fairly similar to what you would see in an analog IC design. Mm -hmm. So yeah. I, I think most At of our- At this point, were you regretting your decisions? <laughs> uh, the whole way. Every moment was pain. <laughs> <laughs> you told a story in one of your other interviews about like just building the program counter. And then when it worked, you were both like happy, but also sad that it meant that you were going to have to do that. Exactly. Whole thing. Yeah. The, the whole, the whole process was basically me trying to prove that this couldn't possibly work and that I shouldn't attempt so that it. You had a good excuse to give yeah, up. Yeah. yeah. So it's, so a lot of it would involve prototyping transmission gates. <laughs> Uh, so I have a couple of breadboards and stuff where I built individual gates, uh, transmission gates, and flip-flops and things like that. Yeah. And then the program counter was kind of the next big step. Uh, the fun story there is that I actually had part of the layout already completely done uh, before I thought, you know, maybe I should take a step back and build the program counter because this is right. going to be a very expensive board. Mm. And it turned out the program counter worked and the carry propagate worked, which was really what I was worried about. I was concerned that there would be some um, maybe gate threshold issues or something like that where the carry would propagate partway and then stop or there, there might be mm. some timing issue or something like that. But it actually worked fine. Yeah, yeah. I guess also because you've got a two phase clock here. Mm -hmm. So if stuff goes really badly wrong, you can adjust those phases mm -hmm. and you have a little bit of leeway there. Yeah, exactly. And it, unfortunately it's all interdependent. So if I adjust the clock phases, then uh, that could throw a wrench in the way that the bus pre-charge cycle works. Uh, so okay. it, it, it's, there's trade-offs everywhere. Yeah. I guess I would say that's the other challenge is that this design is, uh, besides being fairly archaic, uh, it's also 
dynamic, which mm. is a real problem because that means that there are dynamic latches scattered around everywhere. So we're storing our state information literally in the gate capacitance of yeah. uh, inverters and other gates. Yeah. So yeah. that means we Maybe can't even just stop worth, the clock. Um, yeah. Do you want to just explain what a dynamic latch is sure. compared to a, um, a full latch? Yeah. Let me <clears throat> try and find an actual uh, register that we can look at that's got some dynamic latches in here. Yeah. Uh, so this, yeah. I believe, will work. Hold on. Let me make sure. Okay. So I think that's right. That goes off to the bus. Um, no, that loads zero. This is just a transmission gate. Um, and if anyone watching is interested in how flip-flops work, then I can recommend my video on that. <laughs> right, exactly. Uh, the program counter changes every cycle. So I think that might be a pretty good example of a dynamic gate. I'm just trying to think if there's one that might be more clear. Uh, this one's okay. So we're looking at the program counter. Uh, you can kind of see there are these diagonal lines going in between each bit. So that's how you propagate mm -hmm. the uh, carry. When Because what you're doing is your program counter can load an arbitrary value off the bus, but more commonly, it's just simply incrementing itself every clock cycle. And so that's why we have those mm -hmm. lines connected in between. The dynamic part of it, the easiest way to look at it is, is right here in the middle. So we have an inverter connected to another inverter. And so this is a buffer stage. And then in front of that, we have a transmission gate connected to one of our clock phases here. In this case, it's called C clock. Hmm. And what happens is that when we're in the C clock phase, this transmission gate is turned on. And so whatever data is coming from the output of this uh, gate forehand comes through and then gets loaded into the gate of that buffer, right? So the, mm -hmm. the buffer now has uh, either a one or a zero, either high voltage yeah. or, or zero volts loaded into it. Mm -hmm. The next clock phase, I should say the next half clock, this C clock line turns off and that transmission gate opens up. The state of this transistor stays the same because there's charge that's been loaded onto the gate of that MOSFET and there's nowhere mm -hmm. for it to go. It'll slowly drain away for uh, essentially leakage currents and stuff will slowly drain it away, quantum tunneling effects, that kind of thing. But for the most part, it sits there and it just stores that state. That's a dynamic latch. So a regular latch is completely stable indefinitely in either a one or a zero state. But a dynamic latch will slowly change from a one to a zero as that gate charge drains away. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Nice. Nice explanation. And um, I guess like related to um, the design is that the designers were thinking we're going to, we're designing for a specific process. Like one of the great pictures shown in that reverse engineering was the layers. It's like eight layers. I think they were using seven layers. So very early mm -hmm. seven layers. And it, one thing I really liked about that was it was like seven, six, five, four, and then you can't read the other numbers cause they're, uh, invisible because they're, they're like diffusion or doping or whatever. Yeah. They're, they're the, the um, ion implantation layers. Yeah. So layer one is yeah. the first diffusion, which, you know, of course you, you can use to build your transistors and all of that. And then the next two layers are the ion implantation. And that's what you can't see because, you know, you've got your ion implanter and it's literally a, 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 an electron rifle or, or a, a ion rifle. And it's just firing ions into your substrate yeah. at a predetermined depth. And so you're not going to see anything uh, from the outside. No. But by the way, that was yeah. kind of their big innovation, right? So the, 
the process was something that MOS designed themselves, or I should say Chuck Peddle's team, when they joined MOS, because they knew the existing technologies for building chips, and they knew all the limitations. So PMOS, for example, was pretty common at the time, and it was a pain to work with because you needed all kinds of supply voltages, and you had to be very careful about biasing and things like that. And it was also slow, uh, and that has to do with the electron mo or the carrier mobility, I should say. And so that was a problem. But they had been reading papers that were published that discussed using an ion implantation uh, technique to take NMOS transistors and make them depletion mode. And the idea mm -hmm. there is that you're shifting the threshold of the MOSFET so that even if the gate to source voltage, I should say gate to substrate voltage is zero, the MOSFET is still turned on. And so if you think of the uh, voltage uh, curve, the IV curve, you know, you're, you've got your classic uh, MOSFET set of curves. Imagine shifting that to the left. And so now it's turned on uh, essentially continuously. And so that's how you build a, a current source. And so that was their big innovation. And, yeah. And um, they were designing this for that process. So now you're recreating this at the PCB level. Right. Things might not work exactly the same because right. you've got totally different types of devices and all your parasitics and everything else is all different. Right. Yeah, exactly. I, I can't use a, uh, a depletion mode device because they're mm. uncommon on the uh, board level uh, for a board level design. And so I just substituted them with resistors. Yeah. Same kind of story as the um, transmission gate. Yes, exactly. Mm -hmm. You had a bit of a easier workaround there. Okay, cool. So um, we've seen the uh, an example of a dynamic latch mm -hmm. and how that works. Um, should we move up one level now to the, uh, the physical layout? Sure. Let's take a look at that. It's going to take a little while to come up. The uh, file is big. Yes. There we go. How big is the file? Uh, that's a great question. Let me take a look. One, one of the interesting things in the in the reverse engine engineering talk was that the total entropy of this design was something like seven kilobytes. So this is a 21 megabyte board <laughs> file. Yeah. <laughs> Massive. Yeah. I love the way that you've got the uh, bond pads around the edge. That is such a nice touch. It's also yeah. very convenient for testing because I could go in with yeah. alligator clips and, and just connect to them. Just clip them mm -hmm. on, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, so the, the wow. layout is directly inspired by the original, and that helped a yeah, lot. Yeah, so it's cool that you were able to keep it mm -hmm. um, matching. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Exactly. And some of it is cut and paste, so on the registers here, I could cut and paste a lot of the traces. But uh, there's still some routing here that's uh, fairly unique. And uh, mm. it, it took a lot of work. This is about six months of work uh, mm -hmm. to get that all laid out. Yeah. So you were really regretting your choices at this point. Yeah, it was a couple hours every night. I would just sort of chip away <laughs> at it, but it, it was very tedious. Yeah. Kind of gives you an appreciation yes. for the uh, layout engineering that was done by hand in the 1970s. Yeah. You know, this all this yeah. is something you had to do with Ruby Lith by hand. And if you imagine making a mistake and realizing, oh, well, these all have to be shifted over, yeah. and you just went in with your exacto knife and, and chopped away. Slice and dice. Yeah. 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 Wow. 
So you said it's a four layer board. It's four layers. So there's a power yeah. plane and a ground plane and signal traces on the uh, top and bottom. Mm. And loads of LEDs. Loads of LEDs, a lot more than the original. Yeah. Yeah. So I guess you can just, use, once you're happy with the um, the schematic in Altium, mm -hmm. you've already, you've, Altium has got a, a test that checks that your layout matches. So you, that level of the like layout versus schematic, you didn't have to do, you didn't have to write a Python program to do that. Yes. Yeah. That's, that's one of the advantages of using a, a schematic is that you get you that didn't automatic decide to comparison. Write your own PCB design mm -hmm. program to make it even harder. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> yeah. Is, is Altium scriptable? Is it something that you could like, do a bit of pro like for the decodes. Could you show us the decodes oh, um, sure. matrix bit at the top? Cause that seems like that's something that would be fairly easy to kind of programmatically create. I didn't end up scripting that, uh, this, I just used uh, a lot of, not so much cut and paste, uh, but I would just set up a grid and then move things around and then use the alignment tools to get them all lined up. Right. Mm. So it looks like something you could use a program or a script. And I probably could have, but I didn't end up doing it that way. Hmm. Yeah. I think is also when you see it in action, um, or also on the, the visual, uh, 6502, uh, where you can run and step and things like this, it's really gives a great insight into how this processor mm -hmm. works where the uh, instructions are decoded by this big matrix. And you could see like how uh, powerful that technique would be where you're like, okay, I'm going to add a transistor here and that's going to make this line go high. And then I can use that to sneak through all the layout and that's going to uh, make this AND gate turn on or off or whatever. Exactly. In fact, this was really helpful to have the uh, access to the Visual 6502. I, I just use that as my simulation tool. So if I was debugging something mm. on the board, then I could just pull up Visual 6502 and run the same program and and look at some of the nets that lighted up, and then I could compare okay. that with the actual board. Yeah. Okay. So yeah, let's move on then. So you've done the layout, mm -hmm. and you've uh, did you? Um, I guess the the board isn't. It's pretty big, but you probably didn't have to go to like a special fab place to get that made, did you? Uh, most fabs can do a board this big. It's just expensive. Yeah. The other yeah. challenge was for the assembly. The pick and place uh, required several reels of the say, same did part. You do that yourself? Or? No, I, I didn't do this by hand. That would have been yeah. tedious. <laughs> yeah. Well, that would have been tedious. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Although I did swap out the LEDs when the boards came back because they had used the okay. wrong part number. And that was, uh, that was definitely tedious. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, okay. You got your assembled boards back then. Mm -hmm. So now you're on to like this final stage of verification between your, the intention, right? Uh, which you said you can check on the visual 6502. Yeah. The most important thing was coming up with a power up strategy. And so in this case, I used the power supply with a current limit and I started mm -hmm. with a, ra a rather low current limit and I slowly brought it up. And as it turns out, that was a good thing because of some issues with the clock. I discovered that it was possible to get conflicting states in part of the logic. And so okay. there's one spot where uh, there were eight super buffers that could actually uh, turn on at the same time and you'd get a shoot through a current. But because mm -hmm. I had a current, current limited supply, 
I could see that the current was very, very high. And I could also tell that the board was heating up. And uh, since I don't really have a good thermal camera, I could get a vague idea of where on the board it was. But to kind of narrow things down, I wound up using a piece of scotch tape. And so those super buffer transistors melted holes in the scotch tape. And so then I knew kind of what was going on, or at least I could progress to the next step of troubleshooting. But that was kind of yeah. the basic bring up, right? So you're applying power for the first time and you're looking for yeah. major power issues like that. And mm. so I was able to yeah. bypass them at least temporarily to get more and more of the uh, CPU up and oh. running. Yeah. So maybe we did miss something a, a, a few steps ago then. Um, did you have an idea of how much power this is going to draw when you turned it on? Like, Not what, really. What were you expecting? No. Okay. I had, I had yeah. a vague idea, but I wasn't sure what the dynamic consumption would look like. Yeah. So, but I figured it yeah. would be mostly the uh, static loads in the uh, load resistors. So some percentage yeah. of them would be turned on and some percentage of them would be turned off. And then of course there's LED power as well. Yeah. So, cause this is all NMOS. Correct. When the MOSFET's turned on, that's when the resistor mm -hmm. is drawing the, the current. Yeah. Okay. So how, what is the, what is the power draw then? Uh, it varies depending on what you're doing, but uh, typically it's around two and a half amps. Okay. Pretty chunky. Yeah, pretty chunky. So that when you turned your when you turned your power supply on and it went way past that, you were like, mm, yeah, I thought, well, yeah, that's a little tape. high. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> two and a half amp CPU, amazing. I mean, I suppose uh, modern graphics cards use a similar amount, don't they? Yeah, or potentially with more. billions more transistors. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so uh, you brought up the power supply. Mm -hmm. That must have been uh, then you worked out that problem. Did it at that point start kind of stepping through and clocking its first program? So the, the first task there was to essentially test execution of a no-op. And hmm. so I did that by basically uh, pinstrapping the data lines to the no-op instruction by using uh, resistors. Data bus is bidirectional, so I can't just simply strap it to VCC or ground because then you know, you, those might be turning into outputs and uh, then I'd get excessive current there. So I used the 100 ohm resistors, mm -hmm. uh, loaded the no-op instruction, and then just had it run, just had it fetch and execute. You know, of course, it'll fetch the uh, vector, the reset vector address first, and mm -hmm. uh, it's just going to get the no-op instruction, which is fine. And so that's your initial program counter, and then the program counter will just simply increment, and that's what I was looking for. So I ran it with a relatively slow clock, maybe 10 to 20 hertz, and then I could uh, look at it, and I noticed that the program counter uh, was indeed incrementing. <laughs> wow. How did you feel? It felt pretty good. felt pretty good. Yeah. I was still nervous that there would be some other issue. You know, Remember, I already knew yeah. the program counter would work based on that previous test. Yes, but having everything all together, you know, everything all connected, right. must have been a great feeling. Yeah, and then I think from there, I started putting in other individual instructions so then I would mm -hmm. feed in like a, uh, add one to the accumulator type of a thing. Um, I don't really remember what other instructions I used, but it was a fairly abbreviated list of, uh, just a couple of instructions to see if I could get any behavior out of it. Yeah. And then I would look at the yeah. instruction, uh, register LEDs and I would look at LEDs all over the board to try and figure out what was going on. And then I think at some point I also implemented the, uh, the WAS, uh, single step circuit so that I could single step okay. the processor without having to stop the clock. 
I don't know that. Is that like a a trick you can use to like build some external thing? Mm-hmm. To single, yeah, it's a trick chip. with a single right. uh, TTL logic chip that you connect to uh, the uh, sync pins and the uh, ready pin. And so you can cause okay. the processor to basically go one cycle at a time. And so that like was very a, helpful. Um, old school debugging yeah, trick. Yeah, exactly. Single step TTL. And then from there, nice. uh, I had a little computer that I had built and it had its own little ROM, and I started trying to run actual software. I think the first program that it actually ran, at least partially, was the uh, Apple II Integer Basic. So I just wanted some simple program that was already kind of confirmed to work. And yeah, I had already gotten working with a regular 6502 chip, and so I plugged in the Monster. And Is that the little board that appears in the video where it's mm-hmm. got the 60, and you can take that out and then plug the Monster in? Exactly. With it? Flexible cable. Exactly. Nice. So it, it, it actually yeah. came up and it executed the, the basic program without any issues. It just worked the first time and I wow. was really shocked. <laughs> yeah. Amazing. <laughs> Good job. Yeah. Thank you. <laughs> yeah. Congratulations. What an incredible project. And, and yeah. of course, I was still suspicious because I don't believe that basic uses every possible instruction. And so then no. it went into yeah. actual somewhat more formal verification that the CPU is actually working correctly. And so for that, I yeah. Found, so I wanted uh, to I wanted to get onto that. So yeah. like, how did you come up with a list of test vectors, or how did you like make sure every transistor? Because the other the thing that I want to get onto, like I think probably last is uh, I know that you're going to make this into a product one day, mm-hmm. and you've got to have if you're placing so many transistors, you're probably going to end up with some odds and ends that don't get mounted properly. So you're going to need to have some fairly rigorous testing and. Fab, right? Absolutely. So, Absolutely. It's the it's same kind of plan? test that you would use for an actual chip itself. And mm-hmm. what I wound up doing was uh, pulling together a test program that runs a whole bunch of 6502 instructions. And I did it in two stages. So the first stage is to verify bus activity. And the program runs while there is another separate microcontroller that observes the 6502 bus to make sure that the bus cycles all look correct. And so that's kind of cycle by cycle verification. Doesn't verify all the inner workings of the chip, but it does verify sort of basic functionality. Stage two is a more complicated test uh, set of test vectors that, again, it's 6502 instructions, but the idea is to exercise all possible instructions with all possible memory addressing modes and uh, carry bits and and all those types of things. Hmm. The challenge was, so I actually started with somebody else's uh, open source 6502 verification, and it was designed for someone's 6502 FPGA project. The problem was, is I didn't know what the test coverage would be. And so I ended up taking the visual 6502 JavaScript and hacking it together with another script that would go through and disable each transistor one at a time in the design. And so it did it Mm. twice for each transistor. It would make the transistor either stuck on or stuck off. And then it would run the entire validation suite to see if it detected that broken transistor. Checked that it actually failed. Mm -hmm. Right. And so then by taking the percentage of transistors that were detected versus the total number of transistors, I was able to confirm that test coverage was around 80% after I made some improvements to the program. Okay. So, right. So you could, you could still go through manufacture and have a few uh, failures, but they wouldn't get picked up by the validation. Right. So it's certainly yeah. possible. It's just a lot less common for that to yeah. slip past. 
And if it can run all those programs, then it's going to be able to run all the programs that people are going to throw at it in everyday life. Right, exactly. Yeah. yeah. Yes. Uh, I guess it's probably obvious to most people, um, but I, you know, this is like older than um, where I was at. What The first microcontrollers I were using had integrated program memory as well. So you didn't have that um, ability to spy on the on the data bus that you do with this chip. Right. So I guess that does make things a bit easier with this second processor looking at what's going on mm -hmm. on the on the memory. Great. So where are you at with the production plan then? I know everyone is asking. That was like the number one comment on Twitter is like, have you got any questions? For everyone? It's like, <laughs> when can I buy one? <laughs> Everybody wants one. Yeah, I think uh, I think it would be wonderful to be able to offer that for sale and that is our uh, long-term plan. Uh, there are a lot of mm. challenges with that. Uh, well, some of them are supply chain related. Of course, we uh, are sort of coming out of a pandemic. And so that made things very difficult to uh, get anything really designed and into production. The mm. supply chain challenges, I think, are probably a bigger concern. Some of the parts are available again, but they're much more expensive than they used to be. And so we kind of have to reevaluate okay. what that price would look like. Uh, it also means that we have yeah. to get minimum orders in. And uh, honestly, the volume is high enough for some of these parts that we're probably going to be triggering wafer starts, which means that there's going to be a pretty significant <laughs> lead time. And then things like financing <laughs> become a concern because then that means that you have to pay for all the stuff up front to get that order yeah. in. Yeah. And so we're have thinking about, about some crowdsourcing options for doing that. Yeah. Maybe you could like, instead of building out of individual transistors you could integrate it into one circuit now there's a thought you could save some money that way yeah sort of a, a an integrated a fully integrated uh, circuit of some Disintegrated sort integrated yeah. circuit yeah nice <laughs> great okay is there anything else you want to add uh no i think that's it all right well thanks so much for your time eric really fascinating very interesting um and um uh, we'll drop a link to all of the, your contacts and stuff in the description of the video. So if you want to find out more, uh, then click on the links below and uh, hope you enjoyed this interview. Thank you, man. Thanks again.